1: So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20 to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. Sold! Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Are you
1: a scholar, journalist, or writer focused on Palestine? Contribute to the foremost journal on the past, present, and future of Jerusalem. The Jerusalem Quarterly is soliciting articles for peer review, essays, and letters from Jerusalem. Send your work to jq at palestine-studies.org or see palestine-studies.org forward slash journals for more info.
2: Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today it's with great pleasure that my guest is Daniel Seidman. Daniel has been practicing law in Jerusalem and very much has been specializing in legal and public issues in East Jerusalem, at least since 1991, and he has worked on issues and cases related to government and municipal policies and practices representing Israeli and Palestinian residents of Jerusalem. Now, we will talk about some of his cases, we will talk certainly about his work, but I also want to mention that since 1994, Daniel has been uh, uh, you know, actively uh, participating in numerous talks, uh, shall we say, track two talks on Jerusalem between Israelis and Palestinians. Unfortunately, they didn't bring uh, much change later on. But I think it's important to get a sense of what these uh, talks were about and what, you know, they may have changed uh, in the city and the perceptions of the so-called peace process, which obviously right now is not moving forward. Certainly, uh, it's been halted for the past few years. Daniel is also very uh, famous in in a sense that uh, he's taking what we, we call like VIP people, politicians, mostly from America. Around the city of Jerusalem, and I'll be very curious to ask him about, uh, you know, what is that these people don't know about Jerusalem, and what these people should know about uh, about Jerusalem. But before all of this, Daniel, welcome. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Now, Daniel, the first question I want to ask you because you're in Jerusalem and you're a Jerusalemite, even though adopted in a sense, what is your Jerusalem? What is your connection with the city?
3: Jerusalem's my microcosm. <laughs> um, I live vertically. Uh, there are all sorts of people and wonderful people who live horizontally. They go from different positions, and a diplomat will be posted in Beijing, and then will be posted in Rio de Janeiro, or people will change jobs. Uh, And they find their infinity in uh, a multitude of different subjects. And that's wonderful. I don't do that. (laughs) I have my microcosm. Uh, It is the city of Jerusalem and particularly East Jerusalem. My children used to tease me that when I would have to take them on a play date in West Jerusalem, I would get lost. But if you blindfolded me and put me in the middle of the Shuafat refugee camp, I'd find my way around as if I was born there. Um, But fortunately, Jerusalem um, is endless. I mean, I'm sometimes uh, described as a Jerusalem expert. There is no such thing. You know, it's just too large. There are experts on Mamluk Jerusalem. There are experts on planning in Jerusalem. I have a sliver of it, but it never ends. Uh, Every day I'm learning something uh, new. It's riveting. If God exists, uh, her uh, area code on a cell phone and her zip code in mail is local, uh, whether she exists or not. Um, So you literally can find uh, worlds In the city of Jerusalem, uh, uh, which means I have the best job in the world. You know, people will say, oh, it's so grim, and you're you're dealing with a difficult... Yeah, I'm dealing with difficult issues, and I'm not, you know, uh, insensitive to them. I have the best job in the world. (laughs)
2: Let me ask you something. I know you're American, and I was wondering, how was moving from America to Jerusalem? How did that uh, move work out for you?
3: I'm a former American, and I'm a current Israeli. I think that patriotism is monogamous, although um, I do have uh, some envy for um, my uh, friends in the country of my birth after the result of the elections. Their elections worked out a little bit better than ours. I uh, moved here more than 50 years ago Uh, for complex reasons. And I have to think about why I moved here. I have to reconstruct it because I no longer remember. Uh, For me, moving here wasn't the geographical move alone. It wasn't changing um, where I lived. It was a very deep cultural transformation. Um, uh, In some ways, I'm not entirely the same person that I was in my youth. Uh, There's certainly a continuity, Um, but when you genuinely uh, absorb yourself into a new society and learn a new language, language is really important to me. And in my first uh, few months in Israel, In the early 70s, I would sit down and look up in the dictionary every uh, word that I didn't know on the front page of the newspaper, which, by the way, wasn't that difficult because it turns out that journalists have very limited vocabularies. But having said that, I once spent an entire morning looking for the word Rockefeller in the dictionary. Uh, but today, um, with some grammatical errors, um, my my Hebrew is as good as my English. And Hebrew is not a technical tool. Hebrew, for me, is an expression of identity. Um, you know, there are a lot of people in the wake of the recent Israeli elections who are saying, it's time to relocate. And I can understand them. but. I'm not going anywhere. This is home. Um, And that's irreplaceable.
2: I must say that as I was actually in Israel uh, a couple of weeks ago during the elections, I heard a few people following the results uh, mentioning the point that they were going to exploit their um, dual citizenship, whether with Europe or America, and perhaps, you know, making a move. But I agree with you that nationalism, in a sense, patriotism, nationalism is something that I don't, particularly cherish or like, uh, is monogamous. You know, I'm Italian. I lived in five different countries. My kids are both Italian and Israelis, and we live in America. And yet, you know, if Italy would play the coming uh, football World Cup, I would probably cherish and watch Italy. Unfortunately, we won't play any game. Uh, You mentioned you have the best job in the world. So let me ask something about... uh, you know your job can you tell us something about your background and how you came to specialize in legal and public issues in jerusalem by mistake
3: <laughs> it was a life-changing mistake
2: Look, i
3: i uh, prior uh, to my involvement in jerusalem i did have uh something of a political awareness after getting out of the army in the early 1980s, I went to be the legislative assistant to one of the best parliamentarians as well as ever known, Yair Zaban, who later became a minister um, in, in, in the government. Uh, but I decided to go to law school after going uh, into the, getting out of the army because I wanted to have something of a wall between my personal involvement and my professional life, to do something professionally in which I was not personally invested emotionally. Well, it didn't quite work out that way. Uh, I began by being a regular uh, commercial lawyer and a partner in a law firm. Um, there were things that I excelled at and there are things that I were te- I was terrible at. But I was an attorney in a routine role. And then uh, I can tell you the day on which I uh, began my Jerusalem saga. It was the night between October 9th and October 10th, 1991, when the settlers, for the first time, moved in semi-military Uh, fashion, into the Palestinian village of Silwan, which is also the biblical city of David. Uh, The following day, a member of Knesset, Chaim Oron, also a superb member of Knesset, called me and said, I want you to take this to the Supreme Court. And I said, yes, fine, but what is the cause of action? Uh, Why do you think we have a leg to stand on? And his response was, that's exactly what we're going to find out. Um, I was a young partner in a law firm, and I went to my law partners. This was pro bono work. And I said, you know, um, I need permission to do this. And they frowned and said, no, you got to bring in review to the office. And that was that. Um, But later that evening, one by one, the partners called and said, you know, um, we can't um, we can't prevent you from doing this. Go ahead. And with their blessing, uh, I took on the case. And it went from there. You know, when I was a little kid in the States, um, you would get. Uh, uh, trading stamps at the supermarket, and you'd be able to put together these stamps. And if you had enough, you could, you know, buy a hairdryer or an encyclopedia. But you'd buy the encyclopedia volume by volume. And we bought an encyclopedia with the stamps, getting A to C, and then D and and, and, and to F, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That was how I built my expertise on in Jerusalem. Initially, it was the settler takeovers. And home demolitions, the expropriation in Har Homa, uh, the discrimination in uh, municipal services. And I began to have a grounds up familiarity with all of the issues on the various agendas between Israelis and Palestinians. So I literally built an encyclopedic knowledge by buying one volume of the encyclopedia at a time.
2: I wanted to ask you uh, about uh, the fact that you lived in Jerusalem for a few decades, and I wanted to ask you about your personal feelings also living in a city that experienced so many dramatic events, uh, from the First Intifada, uh, from uh, the Second Intifada, obviously, and you know the, the rise of right-wing movements and the settlers throughout the city, but also terrorist attacks. So I was wondering, from your perspective, Daniel Seidman going around Jerusalem, how did you feel about it?
3: You know, I am um, a product of the United States universities at the end of the 1960s and the beginning of the 1970s, which is, you know, the peak of the counterculture. Uh, I lived in a Jewish commune in Ithaca, New York, at Cornell, Um, It was my final year in university before I saw final examinations because we would rebel and shut down the university as final exams came, Uh, which also means it's difficult to shock me. I saw everything back then, and I won't go into detail. Um, But... When I graduated in 1973, I saw um, most of my friends going off to places like Wharton Business School and um, basically saying, okay, it's over. Let's move on and get a life. And I I don't fault them. I'm still in touch with some of them. My base friendships were made then. But I said to them, I said, I don't want to do that. And one of my motivations of moving to Israel, um, and I had studied here a year before, was my desire to live history as a participation sport and not as a spectator sport. Which means when things happen in Jerusalem, I'm in my element, Uh, although they usually don't work out exactly as I would um, like. I feel that in my minor role, I am a participant in Jewish history and global history, universal history, and that's a rare privilege. Um, you know, sometimes I wake up in the morning and feel as if you know I just put my two fingers into the electrical socket and bzzz, and, and and go out into the world. Um, you do develop a way of containing uh, pain and tragedy, which Jerusalem excels in. Um, I don't think you become immune to them or insensitive to them, but you can contain them. You know, To a certain extent, I was better prepared to deal with the shock of the last election results that puts Israel on the cusp of an authoritarian regime uh, I, I I think I was better prepared than most because I've been losing for the last 30 years. I'm used to it.
2: <laughs> Let me ask you something. From, from the beginning, when you moved to Jerusalem uh, up to 2022, what did change in your views about uh, Israel in particular and about the city in more detail?
3: Well, I can answer that question at different levels. Uh, when I moved uh, to Israel in the early 1970s, I was basically the tail end of the immigration, the Aliyah to Israel post-1967. I arrived in Israel just a couple of months before the Yom Kippur War. And that Aliyah was not uh right-wing ultra-nationalist, but it was patriotic. And um, I bought into the mantra, Jerusalem, the undivided capital of Israel that will never be redivided, which is one word and a noun. Um, And it took a long time for me to understand that that is basically a hollow myth. Um, It took me many years after starting to speak and become an expert on Jerusalem before I could use the word occupation in regard to East Jerusalem. I today know that it is impossible to understand the reality of Jerusalem without understanding that 40% of the population are without political rights. Um, And and they're occupied. Um, I also... Underwent various transformations um, in relating to the city. Uh, in the past, it was very romantic. Uh, and uh, today it's deeply emotional, but it's no longer romantic. It's been the transformation of a teenage infatuation into some kind of mature adult love. Um, I I don't think Jerusalem is the most beautiful city in the world. I think it's becoming ugly. But it's the most charismatic city in the world. You can die every death imaginable um, uh, in the city of Jerusalem, except for one. It is impossible to die of boredom in Jerusalem. Um, So there has been a transformation and... It's something that continues to evolve, which may be a cheap trick on my behalf to, you know, delude myself into the fact that I'm not aging, which I am.
2: <laughs> Speaking of which, in terms of uh, how Jerusalem is getting uh, ugly, this uh, Holy Towers building is uh, is a good example of that, I think. I'm, I'm certainly not a fan of, of that uh, monstrosity from an architectural point of view. And I think it's it's not the only one, but uh, certainly at least to me, that does represent what Jerusalem uh, shouldn't be like. But again, I'm not here to judge or how a city should be or not, but uh, from an aesthetic point of view, I...
3: I usually see things through the lens of Israel-Palestine relations. But there are things I come across that I, I cannot uh, frame in any other way as this is a crime against Jerusalem, regardless of who does it, and regardless of the geopolitics of it. The Holy Land Project is an abomination, uh, uh, you know, connecting Abu Tur. To um, the Dungate Silwan, hundred and seventy meters away from Al-Aqsa, is the disnification of Jerusalem, and it's a disnification with a nuclear potential. So I fully agree with you. Um, not everything derives from the relations between Israelis and Palestinians. No, particularly
2: in a city. I mean, in, a, in any urban environment, I would say. So. Let me ask something about your uh, uh, sort of side job, which in any case is always connected to your to your work. Now, you have been taking, uh, shall we say, VIP visitors around Jerusalem, mostly politicians. And I was wondering if you can tell us about this uh, activity, and also if you have one, a, a, you know, a favorite story that you can share with us.
3: Hmm. Interesting. I I don't know how this happened, but um, I discovered that um, being able to look at the physical dimension of the geopolitics of Jerusalem is transformative. Um, What I do is basically... Uh, use Jerusalem uh, as a media to explain itself, instead of preaching and lecturing. Um, My itinerary changes depending on where the center of the gravity of the conflict is. I mean, years ago, I would be going to the southern reaches of Tzor I haven't been there in years because uh, things have moved elsewhere. It's not only The route that changes, it's the subject matter. Um, Every time I go out, almost every time, there is something new that I have learned and I amend. Now, the goal of this is, um, uh, there are multiple goals. There are occasions, and these are most of them, um, where the goal is to give my interlocutor, a geopolitical overview of the city. Uh, The goal is to connect the dots and to create some kind of coherent understanding of the dynamics of the city and the dynamics of the conflict. And that is, uh, regardless of any acute crisis, Um, I never solicit um, visits like this. I don't advertise. I don't ask. Um, they come to me. Uh, so I have everybody since, you know, David Cameron um, to, to Maroon 5, uh, and which is when my daughters began to think that maybe I'm doing something serious with my life. Um, many of... Uh, the visitors would uh, like this to be discreet. Uh, there is a very tall and renowned American diplomat. We all knew he, know who he is, um, who went out and around with me. And when we got to the Mount of Olives, um, we saw somebody that we both knew. And... I was able to establish an interesting fact of physics that somebody who is six uh, uh, six feet five inches tall can fit under the front seat of a Honda Civic. He didn't want to be seen with me. (laughs) Um, Then there are the um, object-oriented outings. Um, in October of 2012, at two o'clock in the afternoon, I, had, I received a, uh, a message from a colleague that um, they had just uh, approved the doomsday settlement of Givata Matos. And I looked at my watch and I said, I don't have time. It was two at o'clock in the afternoon, Jerusalem time. At six o'clock in the evening... Um, Netanyahu walked into the Oval Office to meet with President Obama. There were four hours. Uh, I sent an email to my uh, friends in the White House with a subject line that I've probably said only three or four times in my life, but I have done it. The subject line was, read me. And within a minute, I would get a response We've got it. We understand it. It's gotten where it needs to go. Thanks. Uh, Now, and when Netanyahu walked into the Oval Office, President Obama was completely prepared uh, to challenge him on this. Now, um, that wasn't an accident because I had taken the White House staff uh, to see Givatamatos for years before it became an acute crisis, there's an element of being a surfer in Hawaii in this business where you're able to pick out the big wave on the horizon before anybody else sees it. And we try and flag approaching crises before anybody knows about them. Uh, And that means that you prepare people. You don't not only give people a way of understanding, what the city is, but you prepare them to deal with crises that have not yet erupted. And we have a pretty good record on that. Mm
2: -hmm. I have a good memory of that meeting, and I think it was one of the few times I saw Bibi unprepared, and I think he was surprised, too, that President Obama was aware of facts on the ground that were unfolding. Uh, So it's interesting to know where that information came from.
3: Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash
1: spoken today.
3: Interesting because uh, Netanyahu walked out and accused uh, Obama of racism, uh, you know, Chicago in the 1950s. But he said, you know, the Americans are unaware of what's happening on the ground. Oh, trust me, they were aware. But it's even more ironic. I had a discreet relationship with uh, Netanyahu through his closest advisor. And uh, I would, you know, signal things that, you know, this is something you have to know. And, and and they listened to me among else because they knew that, you know, other people were listening to me. And I begged this guy, come and see Givata with me. And he wouldn't. He said, I said to him, nobody will know about it. Borrow Ehud Barak's dress from the raid on Beirut. Put on a wig. Nobody will know. So here was a situation where the president knew much more about Givata than the prime minister of Israel who lives four kilometers away from Givata Matos.
2: Well, this is fascinating well next time i'll be in jerusalem going around i'll try to make sure that uh, i keep an eye on people that may look uh, in disguise and maybe it's going to be you (laughs) accompany them Uh, let let me ask a question because you mentioned about awareness so i was wondering uh, from your perspective obviously you're no longer american but you are in a sense you're israeli what do you think americans and Israelis do not know about jerusalem that they should know
3: (laughs) Everything. <laughs> look, um, let's put it this way: Jerusalem um, has is mythically overpowering. It's one of it, it, as as an, as a meme as an icon. It's one of the pillars of Western history and Western civilization. And if you will look at art in the middle ages, how people imagined Jerusalem uh, without having ever set sight on it. One of the things that I did uh, during COVID when people were not able to come here and and see things, I would do something of a a virtual tour of Jerusalem and there was a film made. Well, it turns out that there were uh, a group of nuns in Europe in the 18th century, who did the same thing? They had a virtual pilgrimage to Jerusalem without having seen it. Um, people forget that Jerusalem is also a city where uh, poor Slobs like myself uh, live, raise families, go to work, and die. Okay? Uh, um, sewage in Jerusalem obeys the law of gravity and not the liquid party platform of the Palestinian national covenant. But if you think that Jerusalem is only a city, you're never going to understand it. And you have to develop a certain dialectic about when to withdraw and give the city the respect it deserves. And I definitely anthropomorphize that. And when to say, come on, cut it out. You're just a city. You're just a city. Um, there's another problem. Uh, Jerusalem is a very inegalitarian city in, in more ways than one can imagine. But there's one way in which it is almost arithmetically egalitarian. Everybody lies about Jerusalem. Jews lie, Christians lie, Muslims lie, Israelis, Palestinians, international. And it's not accidental because Jerusalem is cherished so much you're willing to sacrifice minor things like the truth um, in the service of Jerusalem. Um, We try and get the facts right. uh, And... If we're listened to, it's because people rely on the credibility. Uh, One of the things I delight in is finding out a fact that will undermine one of my theories. Um, It's just an indication that I'm not brain dead yet. (laughs)
2: Let me ask something about uh, contemporary Jerusalem and the use of uh, certain words which are you know, I would say uh, tricky because they do, uh, you know, trig, uh, trigger lots of discussions and they also like uh, they are very emotional in, in some way. So when we talk about apartheid, what do you feel, what do you think about this term in relation to, to Jerusalem? And also in relation to the question of sovereignty, who owns what in Jerusalem? I I think I can
3: answer um, obliquely, but complicated and may not be consistent. Um, one of the people that I had showed around Jerusalem and I've met a few times uh, is President Jimmy Carter. And he was one of the first who had a book, you know... Um, peace or apartheid. And I bristled at that. I did not see the racialism that uh, one saw in South Africa. But the city has changed. Occupation has changed. And I have changed. Now, um, I think there are still major distinctions between uh, the apartheid regime and what is happening in the West Bank and in Jerusalem, but there are chilling uh, manifestations um, that, that are clearly reminiscent of apartheid and make the term quite appropriate. Now, um, I'll, I'll give you just two examples. Um, one of the claims that Israel asserts regarding different legal systems in the West Bank is occupation is temporary. Uh, And and we are now about to appear or not appear before the international court in Hague over that question precisely, is a 55-year-old occupation temporary or not? But one of the ways that we deflect the accusation of apartheid is... By saying it's 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 inherent in occupation, occupation will end. But we don't say that about Jerusalem. Jerusalem is ours. It's eternal. Uh, that defense just doesn't doesn't hold water here. And in some ways, you know, occupation in Jerusalem is in some ways occupation light in terms in in in, in comparison to Hebron. But the analogy with apartheid is more apt. I don't like to get into the polemic because it adds so much uh heat and very little light. I don't want to um spend the little time that I have engaging people in mud wrestling. However, I, I took a very senior American and here um someone who will remain nameless, uh, and we stood atop Mount Scopus near Augusta Victoria on the Mount of Olives, overlooking Iwan, the Judean desert. And there's a road there that snakes up from the Maaledumim Jericho uh, road in the direction to the north Chizma. And there's a partition in that road. Uh, It is um, five meters high. And on one side of the wall is Israeli traffic, and the other side of the wall is Palestinian traffic. My guest was a very prominent African-American. And I didn't mention that road, but um, she had a very, very talented uh, chief of staff and uh, put me to the test. And said, hey, Danny, why don't you explain to her, what's that? <laughs> and I groaned and I say, okay. And I explained what the road was and why it was put there. And I said to her, I am not fond of using um, apartheid as a polemical device. But tell me, how can I look at that road and not think of the a word how can i possibly do it with any kind of intellectual honesty
2: i guess this is always a problem like to move away from polemics and looking at the reality which brings me to the question of your activity on twitter now you are a very <laughs> uh, active member of the twitter community now we have to see where twitter will go with uh, under the ages of elon musk uh But I'm curious about how did it start and how do you feel about all of the interactions that you have uh, on a daily basis?
3: There's a a really cool story here. Um, I started uh, on Twitter just when it began because one of uh, um, uh, George Soros' advisors encouraged me, you've got to do it, it's like 2007, And I I, I looked at the thing and I said, I really am not interested where George Soros is on any given day, and I canceled my account. My good friend and colleague in Washington, Lara Friedman, who's much more communications savvy than I am, said, you've got to go to Twitter, you've got to go to Twitter, you've got to go to Twitter, and I just refused. And finally she said, if you don't uh, start... Uh, tweeting, I'm going to open an account in your name, and do it for you. And she opened the account and said, "You've got now, you've got now, got 48 hours to start tweeting." Well, I go into the office on Sunday morning, it's a work day here in Jerusalem, and I open the computer, and there's this goddamn Twitter there, <laughs> and I said, "What am I going to do with this?" And the phone rings, and it was a phone call from my friend Jawad from Silwan. He said, Danny, there's some really important people here in Silwan. Uh, you know, there's you know Shabak and the Secret Service all over the place. I said, you know, okay, go and sniff around. Tell me who's there. And 20 minutes later, he came back and said, the settlers are hosting two people. Wait a second. I wrote down their name, uh, John McCain uh, and Joe Lieberman. And my first tweet was, um, John McCain and Joe Lieberman spotted in Silwan, hosted by the settlers of the El Ad organization. And whoosh, I discovered the charms of Twitter. Now, um, for me, Twitter is second nature. I, I, you know, I will be, you know, talking. I'll be having dinner. I'll be. It is an enormously important tool for me because, basically, what I deal with is operational intelligence. I want to know everything that happens in Jerusalem and relates to Israel, Palestine, and I'm not interested in anything else. I mean, I have tunnel vision, uh, and. The source of so much of what I learn uh, from Twitter is enormous. And it is also a way of debunking. I'll get a report. I'll say, friends, anybody out there, can you verify this? Um, It is also a place where I can get my ideas out there. And I have, you know, walked into the White House and uh, had a meeting. And one of the participants would say, On last October 11th, you tweeted the following, would you care to develop that? Um, Which is an indication of the power of this medium. And finally, there is the uh, absolutely naughty aspect of this. I have, you know, I have a great future in back of me. I don't give a damn. I can say what I want. And part of the reason... That I am listened to is because I can say the things that um, diplomats and politicians would love to and don't dare. And I get away with it. Now, um, and that's a lot of fun. I mean, uh, it's just a lot of fun. Ironically, I get very little abuse. By the way, that's been the case throughout my career in Twitter, out of Twitter. I think I've received two threatening letters in the 31 years I've been doing it and one semi-obscene phone call. I, you know, I, I'm trolled every once in a while. My friend Yuda Shaul uh, my friend, Chagit Ofran, uh, both who are out there, received death threats. I mean, Chagit's, uh, uh, you know front door was torched. I have none of that, partially because I'm under the radar. So, ironically, I, I can sympathize with people getting uh, huge abuse on Twitter. It's a terrible phenomenon. I'm not subject to it, among else, because... I'm nasty, and people don't mess with me.
2: (laughs) Well, a bit of preemption, I guess it helps on Twitter. Let me ask something about uh, Terrestrial Jerusalem, which is uh, an organization that you founded, and I think back in 2010, if I remember, Mm -hmm. correct? Correct. And Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit about what is Terrestrial Jerusalem, And uh, what is the purpose of this organization?
3: Terrestrial Jerusalem, to be honest, began as a platform for my work and the work of a couple of colleagues. We're a small organization. We intentionally picked the least sexy name for the organization that we could think of. Um, We like to operate under the radar. You know, When I began this, I would, you know, and, and go to court, and I've had like 25 or 30 cases before the Supreme Court. I get up in the morning and go and look for my name in the newspaper. I don't want my name in the newspaper. Uh, I want to influence how the editorial board views the issue. I don't want my name in the in the paper. Uh, and we are focused like a laser on um, what we know, we know better than anybody else in the world, and what uh, we don't know, we don't want to know, and we don't pretend to know. You know, ask me about Gaza, and you know how humble we Israelis are, and we never talk about things we don't understand. Uh, I'll say, you know, excuse me, no, that that's not what I understand. That's not what I know. We are what we know. Um, we've expanded a bit. In order to deal with some of the broader geopolitical issues among else because oh you know um, I'm one of the last ones standing uh, we've seen everything we've been there, and we know why things are wrong and we're we know how dire the current situation is so we have a working group of very select people who are trying to figure out uh, what can be done today I mean I can I can define. Uh, the goalposts in the following way. People know, uh, although sometimes forget, you can't walk away from this conflict, regardless of climate change, regardless of Ukraine, uh, regardless of China. You can't walk away. On the other hand, people also know you're not going to get anywhere with this Israeli government and the fragmented Palestinian authority. The stars are not aligned. So if you can't do anything... And if you can't walk away, what the hell do you do? And the current paradigms to date of shrinking the conflict just is not convincing anymore. So we are looking for concrete policy proposals to feed to decision makers. Here's something that is achievable It's affordable. It is not hugely costly in terms of political capital, and it is some way consequential and consequential against the benchmark of occupation and, I would say, de-occupation. And we're working on that. Now, uh, the other part of the general context is that the current state of mind in official Israel, and this crosses party lines, is... Uh, Trumpian. Jerusalem is off the table. It's ours. Today, when a, a diplomat will go from Tel Aviv, an ambassador, to our Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and raise a concern about Jerusalem, they will get a paternal scowl and be told, it's none of your business. Jerusalem is an internal Israeli affair. Five years ago, they would have said, we disagree and then go into a Hasbara, but that's a change. On the other hand, the Palestinians have been so sidelined by normalization, Um, have seen occupation entrenched. Many of their wounds are self-inflicted. This is by no means, you know, entirely Israel's fault or the fault of the international community, but what they have left, to rally the forces both domestically in the West Bank and Gaza and in the Arab world, uh, is Jerusalem. The Emiratis can screw the Palestinians with impunity, but they can't ignore al-Aqsa. So you have the situation where Jerusalem is off the table for Israelis. Uh, Jerusalem is the table for Palestinians. And the United States is gone because they moved the embassy and are looking for a way of putting Jerusalem back on the table and discovering that it can't be done on the cheap. They have to reopen the consulate and they're not doing it. That's a, pre- you know, that, that is a promise by the president. So that's the current dynamic. And, and we, we like to focus on, you know, what's going on, you know, at the moment, um, we are recording a week after the elections, the, um, uh, negotiation process is underway. It appears almost certain, not entirely. There's going to be a right-wing government. And we're asking ourselves, do we have enough dots to connect to be able to tell people, folks, this is what you should be looking at. And the answer is no. I mean, we have a couple of things. Partially, but there are not enough dots we have to watch and what the dynamic will be. Um, How is Netanyahu going to handle the status quo uh, on the Temple Mount Al-Aqsa? On the one hand, Netanyahu was very risk averse and very responsible on this issue for many years. And then he went into dismissive and uh, imperial mode, and that began to unravel. And the Netanyahu today is not the Netanyahu. You know, so we don't know what he's going to do. We know he's going to be between a rock and a hard place. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't know enough uh, at the moment to give any kind of clear forecast of what we can expect. But we check
2: hourly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have a couple of more questions, and one is very much about uh, what you were talking about. I'm not asking you for predictions, obviously. This is uh, complicated, but uh, I-, I was thinking about this individual, this character, Itamar ben ultra-right, nationally religious nationalist, uh, who's now at the forefront of uh, Israeli politics, and he has clear views about Jerusalem, in particular about uh, Temple Mount. And I was wondering if. If you see a sort of alliance also emerging here with, uh, you know, the other side of the oceans where we have uh, Christian Zionists who are very similar in terms of political ideas and they may share the goals of fully Judaize uh, Jerusalem and Israel for their own, you know, particular doctrines related to the second coming of, of Jesus, but they do have, obviously have repercussions on the ground. And so I was wondering, how do you see this kind of relationship between the uh, ultra-right religious right in Israel and Christian Zionists in America moving forward?
3: You you are describing an issue that we have been focusing on for many years. Um, What we've seen over the last 15, 20 years, but accelerated in the last two or three, Uh, is the ascendancy of faith communities that weaponize religion, um, whose claims to the city are absolute. They're exclusionary. It's only ours and often incendiary. And you mentioned, too, you have the biblically motivated settlers and the messianically motivated Temple Mount movement. You have the um, various iterations of the Muslim brotherhood who aspire to religious conflict for their own reasons. And they are very much present in uh, Jerusalem, not central, but definitely present. And then of course, you have the end of days evangelicals, not all evangelicals who make both the settlers and the brotherhood look tame. And this has entailed the marginalization of the historic religious denominations who have a a centuries long presence in the city, they've been marginalized. Um, And that contains the seeds of a morphing of a political conflict, which is fueled by religion uh, on occasion. Uh, but can be ultimately resolved by mortal men and women, and it is morphing it into a zero-sum combination of Melchama, Mitzvah, Jihad, Armageddon, Second Coming, hopefully in that order, and then we can all go home. Um, You know, for years I've been saying, guys, the settlers around the old city, Silvan, Shaytarak, Mount of Olives, and the Temple Mount movement. They're becoming more powerful. They're the new normal. Well, when Trump and Netanyahu were in office simultaneously, I could no longer say that. They weren't becoming more powerful. They were the power. I can think of no two people on the planet who are less pious, less men of faith than Trump. And Netanyahu. But during their tenure, policy in Washington was driven by Pastor Hagee and the you know, Christians United for Israel, and policy in Jerusalem was dictated by the settler organizations. And that is a tra- trend that continues. We're beginning to see some pushback from the traditional religious establishments, but there's a lot of work ahead. What this is not about is keep religion out of this you know it's saying keep religion out of jerusalem is as intelligent as saying keep culture out of florence and finance out of manhattan jerusalem is jerusalem because of god whether she exists or not
2: one more question a good friend and a previous guest of the podcast father david neuhaus once told me roberto no one owns Jerusalem, but Jerusalem owns you. Are you owned by Jerusalem? Oh, yeah. yeah.
3: Oh, yeah. First of all, uh, I think that uh, David, who is a good friend, is one of the keenest observers of Jerusalem. Um, let me tell you briefly about something that we've been doing in recent years, which hopefully will be coming to fruition finally in the next few months. Because of the claims that Jerusalem is only ours, possessing Jerusalem, we have put together a database of all of the religious and heritage sites in Jerusalem, the old city and its environs. Uh, There are more than 670. Um, And we've written profiles of each of the relevant sites and aware of our colonial proclivities we have had Christian scholars uh, edit the um, profiles of Christian sites and a Muslim scholar and a rabbi and uh, we will be releasing this in the form of a website but we have a map and the map has tiny dots on it Uh, small blue stars of David Uh, violet-colored crosses, green-colored crescents, and then there are these yellow asterisks, which are heritage sites. The Romans and the Jebusites are represented in Jerusalem. And there are hundreds of Jewish sites, hundreds of Muslim sites, hundreds of Christian sites. And when you look at the visual of this, there's no way you can say, some group or some individual possesses Jerusalem. It's just impossible. Um, Jerusalem inspires possessive urges. That's something that I'm sympathetic with. But the history of Jerusalem is littered with leaders, um, military leadership, tyrants, who have claimed to possess Jerusalem in the name of some higher order, be it God or country or whatever, none of their stories entered well. Jerusalem is a very kind city for those who treat her complexities with the reverence that it deserves. It is one vindictive, nasty town for those who ignore how complicated the city is.
2: This was Daniel Seidman, lawyer, activist, and Twitterati. Daniel, thank you so much. My pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks, and I'll see you next time. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens.
1: ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend.